Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man who's going to start a Millie Vanilli tribute band where they just lip sync Millie Vanilli songs. It's Dale. Well, ain't that the real band? Well, yeah, no. <laughs> Would there be a difference, though? Hmm, no. Same difference. They didn't really want to do that, but that's what they did. They did. Pretty sad. It is sad. And they probably could sing, I don't know, I guess they could. I, I don't know. I, I don't know either. I don't either. That's what I've heard. I ain't never heard them do it. But when they first came out, they were great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was awesome. Oh, yeah. Ooh-wee. What's going on today, dude? Oh, same old, same old. Same old, same old. Yeah, had a little bit of nice weather today, though. Man. Before it got cold again. Had a little teaser of a spring today. Man, it was nice. Oh, man, yeah. Got the sunroof off coming on. Yeah. Man, it was nice. Drove the windows down. Heck, yeah. Man, it was great. Carolina day. No, it's not a cloud in the sky. Beautiful. No, it was a beautiful Carolina day. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I want to remind everybody to go to the store page, check out the merch, get you a t-shirt, get you a mug, get you some kind of hoodie, and support the crack house. Yeah, and then uh, head over to uh, Apple Podcast Review and uh, put up a couple five stars and give me something to talk about. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, and it does not cost anything to do that, guys, and it will really, really help us. Yeah, helps other folks find us, unless you just want to go stand on the side of the road and hold a sign up or tell your neighbor or go knock on the door and stick a sticker on the door or something. Yeah. We'll take that, too. We will take that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll see any stickers to stick them. Yeah, but if you're standing outside the road holding a Crack House Chronicle sign, take a picture of yourself and we'll post it. Yeah, we will. We'll send you a sticker. Yeah, we'll make you Trailer Park famous. Yeah, that's right. Whoop whoop. All right, dude, we're gonna get started on this episode because it is a crazy mess. It's a doozy. It's a doozy, no doubt about it. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah, it's, it's all over the place. Yeah, but we're talking about a guy by the name of Gary Kruger. Yeah, no relation to Freddie, but more, maybe a little more scary. He could be. He could be related to Freddy Krueger. You ain't got a dream for him to show up. No. No. This guy's it's more of a nightmare. This guy's bad. Yeah. But his full name was Gary Curtis Krueger. And it's and spelled the same way, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And, but just a little bit of background on Gary Krueger. He was born on January the 28th of 1948. 1948. Yep. Now, he graduated from Seattle's Lincoln High School in 1967 and enlisting in the United States Navy before he even graduated high school. Yeah, he's ready to go, wasn't he? Yeah. And he left for Vietnam in November of 1967. Man, I bet that was a damn shock to the system. He was just a kid, man. Yeah, straight out of high school. And shortly thereafter, he volunteered for the United States Marine Corps. But while Gary was in the Marines, he became part of the Combined Action Group. Now, Dale, this is an elite experimental group that merged community service with PSYOPs works in Vietnam. Hmm. Yeah, and Gary was present for the Tet Offensive, as well as many other uh, pivotal moments there in the war. So what is this PSYOPs? Is this some kind of psychological operation, mind game thing? I would say so, yeah. Something down that road? Yeah. Yeah. But while in Vietnam, Gary's mindset, it began to change. I bet it did. And he became more aggressive. Or and, die. Yeah, I mean, probably really. so. I mean, no. And when he returned to the United States just two years after his enlistment, he came back as a changed young man. Well, you can think about it, man. You go straight out of high school. A kid. And, you know, I'm sure he graduated in, you know, right before the summer and then by the fall, you're in the jungle. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't give you much time except for basic training and go. You're in a, a different country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With some serious stuff going on, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But Gary Kruger was honorably discharged in January of 1969 and returned to the Seattle, Washington area he'd grown up in. Right. 
And in June of 1969, Gary Kruger became a Seattle police officer. Okay. As well as joining the Army Reserves. And over the next 11 years, he would work various beats with the Seattle PD, including patrol, traffic, and even tactical squad duty. Well, I guess that's a good transition, you know, from the military over to police officer. You yeah. Know, if you, you know. You got the background for it anyway. Yeah. If you're out of the service and then you, you know, something good, that's kind of, kind of along the same lines there. Yeah. And in the early 1970s, Gary met and married his wife, Betty. But their relationship would be tumultuous mm. over the next few decades. But they did have one child together, and it was a daughter, and they had her shortly after they were married. All righty. Now, while a police officer, Gary obtained a bit of a poor reputation, Dale. Yeah. He became known as a hothead, and he got a quick temper. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm and, sure that, uh, you know, that Vietnam stuff probably was kicking in. Man. You, yeah. Would you think about it, you know? Probably did. PTSD stuff. And he got himself in some bad situations. Yeah. Really did. And in 1970, Gary responded to a call from a hospital. This is where a patient that was an unruly Vietnam vet, mm-hmm. was probably like himself, was yeah. harassing some nurses and some of the patients. And Gary used a wrestling hold move to restrain this guy. But this man later died. Man. Yeah. But Gary didn't get any punishment for this incident. I don't know if he should have. I don't know. Right. Well, different times. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he was protecting the nurses and the patients. I, I don't know. Yeah, we don't know really how unruly this fellow was or what he was doing, you know. But I guess he needed to be restrained, and he did it. I mean, if he had a scalpel going towards somebody, I guess restraining him would be the best way to go. Yeah. All right. Now, in 1974, Gary was responsible for beating a man along with another police officer. And the man who had been arrested by the two officers was beaten so severely inside a parking garage that Gary and the other officer, they just received a slap on the wrist. Mm. But the man was beaten so bad, he was later awarded a $3,000 civil case. Wow, which, you know, and that don't sound like much, but today that'd be the same as about $18,600. Still ain't enough. Ain't enough. Especially when this is the guy who just was pulled over for going through a yellow light. Yeah. And when he asked why they pulled him over, that's when they beat him, or that's when Gary beat him. Yeah. Ooh, or they took him back and beat him or whatever. They, they hauled him in for running a yellow light. So this is uh, the way Gary is. Yeah, and it's getting worse, as you can see. Yeah. And in 1977, just a few years later, Gary was in pursuit of a prowling suspect. And while sitting in the front seat of his patrol car, he claimed that the suspect produced a knife and threatened his life. Yeah, he said he'd come in the, do- in the window of his patrol car with a knife. Yeah. What do you say? And without even standing, Gary shot the suspect. But the, four, yeah, four times. Yeah, but the suspect, his name was Roger Lee Stanley, and he died at the scene. Yeah. So whether he pulled a knife and jumped in his window, we don't know. No. That's, that's, that was his tale. But Gary shot him. Yeah, four times. And Gary was actually tried in court for this shooting incident, but it was ruled as justified by the jury. Right. So he. So another off the hook. Yeah. And just a couple years later in 1979, Gary entered into a blind rage when a man who was high on PCP tried shooting Gary with his own weapon. Yeah, he wrestled the weapon away from Gary. Yeah. And that's when he tried to get him, yeah. He did. And then Gary started beating the guy, and he beat him, and he beat him, and he beat him until other cops finally got there and pulled him off of him. Yeah, he did. But, you know, I don't know. That PCP stuff's pretty wild. I've seen some wild videos on that so 
I ain't trying to take up for Gary at all, but I just don't know. You know, PCP make people crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And invincible. Yeah, I feel like you don't you don't feel any pain either, probably. I guess. Gives you superhuman strength. I guess. I don't know. I don't like know how it does. Salt. I've heard it does that to you, but like that bath salt stuff, you know, or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> but this incident was so bad that um, they referred him to a psychologist and there was a friend of Gary's even took his weapons from him as a precaution. Yeah, out of his house. Yeah. Went, went and got all his guns just to to be sure. That's right. So at this point, Gary's anger issues had turned pretty serious. Yes. And it even divided him from his own family. Mm-hmm. And even to the point of ruining his relationship with his coworkers and his friends. Everything, yeah. And he began to attend court-offered therapy sessions. And in the 1980s, there was a psychiatrist, John Berberick, called Gary a liability in a professional letter. Mm-hmm. He stated that Officer Kruger was becoming increasingly unable to control his temper and was becoming physically abusive to suspects and exercising excessive force. Mm-hmm. That's what the psychiatrist stated. He's taking advantage of his situations. Yeah. And it was in 1980 that Gary Kruger officially announced his retirement from the uh, Seattle Police Department. I don't think he had a whole lot of choice here. No, I don't think he did either. I think they gave him the choice to retire or he's just going to be fired. Yeah, but he cited in a retirement letter that it was due to a back injury he had obtained in a foot pursuit. Mm-hmm. But I think everybody knew that it was one of the be fired, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, at least they let him do that so he could still draw, I guess, for disability or something. Yeah, they just save him face and let him yeah. just get him out. Yep. Yeah. We got rid of him and save, you, save your uh, reputation a little bit. What you got left, get, yep. on out of, get on out of here. So Gary was just... At this time, in his early 30s, and, man, he'd done a lifetime of stuff just to be in his early 30s. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't beat the heck out of a bunch of people. And he'd already found himself removed from two careers that he pursued. Mm-hmm. And now he found himself lost and a little bit more angrier. A little bit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But after being pushed out of the Seattle Police Department, Gary Kruger began a short-lived career as a real estate agent. How do you think that worked out? I don't think it worked out too good for him. It just don't seem like he's got the proper etiquette and mm-hmm. the temperament for a real estate agent. But at this time, Gary was real estate career. It was short-lived. Yeah. And Gary, again, was unemployed and filing bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And Kruger had also developed a series of personal issues throughout the 70s. Most notable was his temper, but hidden under the surface was a gambling habit, which yeah. he turned into an addiction. Yeah, that ain't good either. And this... Like he ain't got enough problems already. I know, and this led him to separate from his wife, Betty, in the mid-1970s. And they eventually reconciled, but uh, they officially divorced in 1970. Now, from there, Gary's habits got worse and worse, Dale. But he doubled down on his gambling addiction after his real estate career dried up. And he began to lose himself in a spiral uncontrollable emotions mm. well if you're already broken and you're gambling and you're not doing well that's not a very good choice no but in 1984 things sort of began to turn around for him a little bit he seemed to be making some money and he was able to reconcile with his wife betty yeah and they actually got remarried that year and gary who was still out of work was able to pay for their small family vacations mm-hmm Go do but, some stuff. Yeah, go do some stuff, yeah. Which He's making cool. a little pocket money somewhere. Yeah, he was doing something. But things seemed to be trending upwards over the next couple of years until October of 1986. 
And this is when a Grays Harbor County deputy began following a speeding Chrysler. Yeah. And this Chrysler was driven by a suspicious individual. Mm. As he began following the vehicle, he called in the license plate and discovered that the vehicle had been stolen just outside of Seattle, Washington. Mm. And, and now it's on, right? Yeah. The, and eventually the vehicle pursuit ended in a pretty bad crash. Yeah. And the Chrysler went off the road and the deputy stepped toward to check on the driver and found Gary Kruger behind the wheel. He was driving the car. Yep. And get this. He was wearing a trench coat and having in his possession two duffel bags that contained ski mask, rubber mask, a police scanner, and multiple firearms. Hmm. Well, now. Yeah. So a check on the items involved pointed to a robbery spree which spanned between 1984 and 1986. And this included the towns of Aberdeen, Grayland, Freeland, Nassau, Good gracious. Rochester, and Graham. And on all occasions, one of the bandits had always demanded big money and traveler's checks. Traveler's checks. You remember them? I do remember them. They're pretty cool. But get this. Gary used traveler's checks on his family's vacations. But they well, were, they were vacations they were taking them on. Yeah, I guess we figured out where he's making his side money, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah. Was, so now he's he's went from military to policeman to uh, real estate, real estate to bank robber or some kind of robber. Yeah, he's robbing, holding up banks. Yes. Yeah. Well, now. So in March of 1987, Gary Kruger pleaded guilty to two felony armed robbery charges. His Robert partner was Carl Keller, and he cooperated with investigators early and was able to plead guilty to only one charge. Right. But Gary Crew was given a 15-year sentence for the bank robbery spree with the possibility of early release if he had good behavior. That seems pretty low to me. Yeah. I thought bank robbery got you a whole lot more than 15 years. But yeah, especially all. Well, it's a whole different time now. Five, six different places he was going to. Yeah. I mean, these are separate offenses. So, right, yeah. Yeah. So behind bars, Gary Kruger must have been a pretty good prisoner because he was released in a little over five years mm-hmm. after pleading guilty in 1992. Good behavior. But his family had stood by him during his time in prison. Mm-hmm. and But they suffered some financial hardship you think? while he was behind bars. They wouldn't get the, the bank robbery money, I guess. They were getting them travelers' checks. And that's right. And Gary was... Still relatively young. He was just in his mid-40s, man. But he'd already yeah. fallen too far into the criminal mindset. Yeah, I mean, he had time to get his life back on track. But like you said, he's he's deep in and out. And what, what else does he know at this point? Being a criminal. Yeah. Yeah. So in January of 1999, Gary Kruger was given a misdemeanor charge for third-degree theft in Kirkland, Washington. With it being a misdemeanor, he didn't carry any jail time. Yeah. You would think this, with this record, it really wouldn't matter at this point, you know? Yeah. Repeat offender. Right. So on January the 3rd of 2001, there was a real estate agent there in Kirkland, Washington. Okay. His name was Mike Emmert. Okay, Kirkland, this is where that third degree theft came. So it's the same town, right? Yeah, it is. Okay. And Mike Emmert was a real estate agent, and he was a pretty prominent real estate agent. And he had been contacted by a client who was interested in looking at a home in the east side area near Woodlandville. 
And Woodlandville is a smaller city that is about 10 miles north of Kirkland. And it's a very prominent neighborhood. It is very upscale neighborhood. Yeah. It was like a dead end road neighborhood with gated driveways and that kind of thing. It is. Yeah. yeah. But the man in question also had a home in particular that he wanted to look at, which they made a priority. And yeah. Mike Emmer wasn't managing that property, but he spoke to the seller's dealer and arranged the time to take a visit. Mm-hmm. And the home that was this potential client they was looking at, it was a little over half a million dollars at the time. Yeah, it was like. Five hundred and eighty something thousand. Yeah, this was in close to six hundred thousand. This was in two thousand one, so it'd probably be over a million dollars today. Yeah, but it was a modern, recently built uh, beige brick home, and it was just massive. And Mike met the client in the parking lot of a shopping mall, and together they headed to the home in question. Right. It's kind of weird because he had called him not through the office, right? He just, no, he just contacted him. Contacted him straight to him, right? Yes. He wanted to go see this house. Mm-hmm. And then, wanted, and then met him. It was kind of weird. Yeah, they rode together to this house. Yeah, and then uh, Mike's uh, Escalade. Yes, they did. Now, the two men, when they got to the house, they toured the home, and Mike picked up on the other man's interest. And he had picked out this house in particular, and Mike was pretty hopeful that he was able to close on this property because this guy, he had told Mike that um, – he was going to come in with some money. Yeah, inheritance money. Right, or something. He definitely was coming in some money. He was looking for this place, and Mike was like, man, I'm going to close on this quick and be on to the next one. Yep. And the two men left, and Mike dropped the man off in the parking lot that they met at, this, right. this shopping center mall parking lot. And later that night, Mike got home. He was talking to his wife about this particular client, and he described him as being kind of odd. And he figured that the guy was in his early 50s, and he walked with a limp. Yeah, pretty pronounced limp. And carried a cane with him. And Mike said the guy spoke with some kind of East Coast accent. What does that mean? I don't know. Is he? (laughs) Is it like us, or are we talking like New York? Yeah. I guess it's a very wide. Did he say he wanted to go get a cup of coffee? I don't know. (laughs) But uh, that's East Coast, too, right? Yeah. Okay. But Mike also told his wife, Mary Beth, that the man claimed to have like, relocated from Northern California, and he was currently staying with some friends. Yeah. And he either worked as a counselor or some something like that. Yeah. He had a pretty weird story. The guy said he was weird, but his Mike's wife was also a realtor and said they always running across pretty, uh, you know, different folks. And that's what they would do at the end of the day. They would uh, discuss what's going on and what their day was and the people they met. Yep. Yeah. So on the following day, this was January the 4th, 2001. It started off like just any other day for Mike. Uh, Mike got up, got showered, and ate breakfast and then went to work. And his wife, Mary Beth, who also worked as a realtor, did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And when he arrived at work, Mike told a coworker that he was going to meet up with a weird dude, in quotes, later that morning. But he didn't share any more details, right. just dropping a tidbit as a joke or just a conversation or something like that. And he marked in his work ledger a daily planner that he kept that he was going to meet up with a client named Stephen. So once again, Mike and this guy named Stephen met up at the parking lot of the Kirkland Park Place shopping mall like he did the day before. Mm-hmm. Same thing. And but this is, you know, it kind of weird in a way, because potential clients usually met with realtors and other agents at the office 
or the property that they were going to look at. Yeah. But meeting at a third location was viewed as strange, even to Mike's wife. Didn't make a lot of sense to me either. I mean, then going back-to-back days. Yeah. Mike met this Stephen guy at this Kirkland Park Place Mall shopping center and parking lot at around 1130 that morning. They proceeded to the property they had viewed the day before, mm-hmm. driving together in Mike's 2000 Black Escalade. Yeah, just yeah. The same, same. Yep. So at around 1230, this is just a little over an hour later, there was a woman named Gail Garland. She was leaving work and heading home for lunch. Right. But Gail, she was the homeowner of this Woodlandville property that Mike and Stephen were going to look at. Correct. Yep. And yeah, she was heading on for lunch. She knew that they were coming earlier, so she was hoping that it's already gone. That's what she was hoping, yeah. yeah. And at around 1240, when Gail made it home, she parked in the garage and entered the home mm-hmm. through the garage door. And when she entered the house, she was immediately alarmed when she found that the front door was slightly open. Yeah, I think she saw like a light somewhere on the wall. It's like, what is that? And then she knows that the front door was cracked, Yeah, which is odd. Yeah, so she, I guess she got kind of ticked off because she knew that the real door. left her damn house open, yeah. Yeah. And she began walking toward the front door. Uh, She could hear water running upstairs. What the heck? And when she uh, shut the door, she started walking upstairs because she didn't know if anybody was still there or not that would freak me out but she didn't see any cars in the driveway right, no or anything or, or in the street or nothing yeah. yeah so she started slowly going upstairs and as soon as she made it to the top of the stairs she could see a trail of blood leading to the bathroom well, i'm gonna tell you right at this point here dale's going out the door he ain't going to the bathroom he ain't going <laughs> not another step we're going out the door <laughs> yeah yeah so she goes to the bathroom where the sound of water was coming from, and she slowly went into the bathroom and opened the door, and it was a pretty horrifying sight. Yeah. Yeah. The bruised and bloody body of Mike Emmert was was in the bathtub. Yep. Yeah, and the water shower was just pouring on him. Yep, and then both, they had the, the vanity uh, sinks, both of them, the water was wide open on those as well. Yeah, water running. Yeah. Full blast in the bathroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't a good sight. No, he'd been beaten and stabbed, and so he was in a pretty bad shape. And he was he was definitely passed away. Yeah. So keep in mind, Mike's wife Mary Beth, she was also a real estate agent, and she was driving when she got a call from her mom, who was also a real estate agent. Yeah, at that same office. Yeah, actually, yeah, her mom and Mike worked in the same office. His wife did not. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary Beth, Mike's wife, had got a call while she was driving from her mom. And she told her the news. Yeah, because uh, when Gail called the police to let them know, so they went ahead and called the office. And then they said, you know, it was kind of, it was good and bad when they called the office because, you know, his mother-in-law worked the same office. So she took the call and got the news. And then she in turn had to call her daughter and let her know what was going on. Yeah. That wouldn't be easy news to pass on. And both local police and sheriff's deputies responded. And, Dale, this would become the first homicide in the city of Woodlandville since 1997. Mm. So they called in the King County Sheriff's Office because they were more prepared to do this kind of... Yeah, they were in over their head. Yes. No doubt about it. But investigators were able to put together the series of events that led up to the arrival of the homeowner, Gail Garland. And it wasn't pretty, man. Okay. The working theory is that Mike had been showing the home to a client, this mysterious Stephen. Stephen. And the two had been upstairs in the bedroom when the client 
hit him from behind. And this blow had likely either knocked him down or knocked him out. Right. And from there, this Steven attacker guy had proceeded to brutally beat and stab Mike. Repeatedly. Yes. And in total, Mike was stabbed repeatedly. And later reports would indicate they'd been stabbed at least. 19 times. Man. With a weapon that resembled some kind of long knife. Or something, yeah. Yeah. It's like a non-serrated blade, at least they know. Yeah. Yeah. And from here, the attacker, likely this client named Stephen, had dragged Mike's body about 18 feet from the bedroom to the bathroom next door into the bathtub. Yes. And yes. where he was lying face down. Just in case he was still... Um, I guess he wasn't, in case he wasn't dead yet, they put him face down. Yeah. So he drowned? Yeah. Yeah. If he was still living. After 19 times, I don't know if it was required. The attacker turned the shower on and the sinks to, I guess, risk away any kind of evidence or DNA or anything. Yeah, or definitely. He probably went in there and wiped off and cleaned himself up and his blade or whatever he used and in the sinks and then left that on so it just keeps on washing everything down the sink. Yep. Whatever was there is going to be gone. And a later forensic examination of Mike's body and the house could only find DNA belonging to Mike. And Gail. Yeah. Yep. So it seemed that the killer's theory had worked. He'd left no trace of him at the crime scene. He'd done good. Yeah. And police discovered that a number of items were missing from Mike's body, including his wallet, his cell phone, his wedding ring, and his watch. His $3,000 watch. Yes. A Pre gold and silver Breitling wristwatch. Yeah, pretty high dollar. Very nice. Yeah. And his uh, wedding ring was a, like a thick golden band that had like three diamonds aligned in a row in it. So it wasn't just your regular wedding ring. It just wasn't a regular band. Huh? Ain't like mine. It was uh, <laughs> high dollar stuff. Yes. But despite these missing pieces, you know, that were pretty valuable, investigators never really considered the case of robbery. In fact, as they began to learn more about the case, they began to consider motives ranging from jealousy to this being a professional hit. Now that's a pretty wide range, isn't it? Yeah, that's going to the extreme. Yeah, it's like we got a whole lot of working theories here. So hours later, police recovered Mike's black Cadillac Escalade, hmm. and it had been abandoned at this Kirkland Place shopping mall. So right where you met the guy? Yeah. Okay. And they immediately suspected that Mike's killer had driven it back to the scene. You think? That's what I, yeah. It didn't drive itself. That's pretty good deduction right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Please work. And the thorough examination of Mike's vehicle discovered some blood and skin samples, which didn't match up with Mike or any of his known acquaintances. Right. Now, skin samples, you know, probably wouldn't be that big a deal. But the blood, definitely. Because I'm sure he hauls clients all the time. Yeah. So there's definitely going to be stuff in there. But the blood, that's a different story. Yeah. Blood, the clients just don't bleed. You know, and it's kind of odd that you think that he had left such a thorough crime scene at the house. But the car, blood and everything in it. Well, he probably got injured attacking Mike. Yeah. You know, well, yeah, you probably, probably did. Yeah. Now, the samples that they found in Mike's Escalade were submitted to the FBI DNA database later that year in 2001. So that's like CODIS, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, within 24 hours of the murder, Mike's wallet would be found in Seattle. Hmm. It's kind of odd, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was on top of a payphone. Like it was just meant to, here it is. Yeah. And it was out near the, the ferry terminal at the Coleman Docks. 
uh, near Pier 52. Hmm. Very strange. And after looking through Mike's wallet, investigators determined that Mike's ATM card was missing. And they checked his bank records and we discovered that this ATM card had been used hmm. after Mike had been murdered. So a few days later, Mike's cell phone was found. But they didn't say much about this. They, anything they knew about that, they didn't reveal it. They did say that had, there definitely had been some outgoing calls, but that's about it. Yeah. I'm like, man, who did he call? Did they, we they, they didn't check on it. They didn't say nothing, did they? They kept all that close. Right. Yeah. But like the other things that was stolen, Mike's diamond wedding ring and this expensive wristwatch were never found. Nope. Now, within a week or two of the crime taking place, investigators, they developed their first suspect in this, man. Hmm. And this suspect was a homeless guy who had often hung around the Kirkland Place Shopping Center where Mike and this mysterious Stephen guy. Yeah, they'd met up the, the, the two times. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of odd, though, right? Yeah. This, this man, his name was Jeffrey John Solo. And he was in his, his early 60s and was divorced father of four. Yeah. And one of his kids just happens to be a world-famous Olympic gold medalist. And her name is Hope Solo. Was she a soccer player? Yes, she is. Right. Now, the reason they really went after this guy is because their physical description was spot on. And it was pretty close. He even had the limp and the cane and everything. You know, and he was a Vietnam veteran, you know, and he'd work with a lot of the counselors and stuff. So... He met all the criteria, this Stephen guy. Yeah, he was, you know, exactly. In, hmm. When you first you see he picked up a homeless guy, I'm like, eh, well, what's up with that? You know, just trying to blame it on somebody. But and then when you go back in the physical description, the limp, the cane, the whole works, he's got it all. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. So we were to see, you know, and then, so they, they talked to the guy and took him in. He's like, hey, no, I ain't killed anybody. I may be a con man. <laughs> definitely might be a con man, but uh, definitely not a killer. No. And, you know, this was confirmed by his own criminal record, which showed a conviction in the late 70s for fraud, but showed no signs of a violent record. Right. I mean, he even admitted, like, to doing the, the real real estate thing to try to meet women, not for... Yeah. Yeah, not bust people in the head, but, you know. So, I guess it was a pretty good, you know, fine, but it just didn't match up. And Solo even said that whoever this killer was, wasn't him. In fact, the killer might have been trying to frame him posing as someone... Man, you know that that's that's pretty slick right there. Yeah. I wondered if this guy maybe hung around enough to see somebody like that to know that they would try to pin it on him, maybe. That's very possible. Hmm. I didn't think about that, but yeah, that's very possible. Because that's where they met. Yeah. The limbs that came. And he's seen this homeless guy staying out there all the time. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Wow. That's 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 some sophistication right there. Yeah, that's thinking ahead. Yeah. But uh Solo, he cooperated with investigators going through all the process of taking a polygraph and even giving up samples of his hair and uh, DNA. Yeah. He did. And he was never officially detained or charged with any crimes. And in March of 2001, he was officially cleared as a suspect. Well, that's good. Yeah. And no further information would come to light. And eventually, uh, Jeffrey John Solo was later cleared of any involvement. His daughter, Hope, who was the Olympic gold medalist, actually fought to get her father's name cleared yeah. of any wrongdoing, even beyond his death in 2007, which was due to a heart attack. Well, yeah, and she later told a publication, she says, no matter what he did, he was my father. He helped create the person I am. He showered me with love. He just didn't know how to be a husband or a father or a responsible member of society. Yeah. But he was a good dude. Yeah, he was just homeless and just 
Playing the game, man. Yep. Yeah. Surviving. But the investigation into the murder of Mike Emmert continued and focused on a number of potential motives. They had started out by inquiring about Mike's finances and even worked their way into a group of family and friends. And they wanted to determine if anyone in his circle had any reason to want Mike killed. Well, it could start somewhere, I guess. Yeah. Probably, you know, trying to see who would benefit, you know, if, if, if you know, who, who's going to get the money or this kind of stuff. But Dale, they were conducting hundreds of interviews with people, even going back 10 years and prior businesses that Mike was involved in and interviewed anybody that could establish any kind of uh, motive that would want Mike killed. That's being pretty thorough. Isn't yeah. It? These, 10 years. these interviews included an exhaustive investigation into Mike's own wife, Mary Beth and his assortment of colleagues, but they didn't find anything. Mm. And by this point, police had worked around the theory that whoever had killed Mike Emmert had likely conducted similar violent crimes. Mm. Yeah. Even with one detective quoted as saying, whoever did this had experience. Yeah. Mm. And this began to lead police down a path of believing that the crime had been premeditated. Then it even looked like it could be the work of a professional hitman. Investigators were able to discover that whoever had met Mike that day, likely this client that they talked to, refer, yeah, this uh, Stephen in his daily planner had used payphones to contact Mike. Yeah, not only did he use payphones, he used different payphones yes. every time. Yeah, and it ain't publicly known how many houses this uh, mysterious client had been looking at to, I guess, find the one that would suit his need to do this deed. Right, so I guess that's why they went two in a row. He found the one he liked and wanted to go back the next day. Yeah. Because it was kind of, you know, out by itself, even though it was in that uppity neighborhood. And out of the very few details that police were able to to get out of this, this mysterious Stephen guy. The cane and all that. was just a ruse. Yeah, he's just faking it. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it was somebody who was staked out and what seen the homeless guy and thought he'd be a good patsy. Yeah, very true. But from the evidence that they were able to put together, it seemed like the killer had attacked Mike from behind in one of the bedrooms, and it's shown the ability to physically overpower Mike, who stood about six feet tall, and Mike weighed about 185 pounds. Yeah, and he's in very good shape. Yes. Yeah. But Mike had been beaten and stabbed numerous times. Well, if he had that cane, if he smacked him in the back of the head of that cane, pretty good, and then just kept on, and then whatever. I mean, I can see that. But I'm going to tell you, picking somebody up, 185 pounds exactly that that's not easy no no feeble man with a limp and a cane is gonna do that i wouldn't think Mm-mm. all right now the police turned their sights onto the possible weapon used by mike's attacker right i guess after trying to figure out how they got him into the bathtub and all that stuff now they got to figure out what he used right but due to the stab wounds and the examination performed by the autopsy it seemed that the killer had utilized a long knife hmm. But months later, it would reveal that it could have been a long knife or even a sword. Okay. Yeah, maybe concealed inside the the cane. So like one of them sword canes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know about a sword. What, in my opinion, it's maybe a long blade. Yeah. But wouldn't you think if it's a sword, that it ain't easy to stab somebody nineteen times with a sword. That's gonna take a lot of effort. Yeah, and it's kind of awkward and not very efficient. I would say it'd be some kind of dagger inside I mean, that. Yeah, yeah, like cane. a dagger. You know, maybe eight or nine inches long. Man. Yeah, it's still long, but not sword long. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah. In my opinion, we don't know. So over 10 King County investigators worked on this case early on, contributing their expertise and legwork, aided by countless number of fellow officers, aides, analysts, and experts. And they were all unable to come up with any smoking gun that pointed to a suspect. Mm. And outside of a small amount of DNA in Mike's SUV, they hadn't found any matches. That was it, man. And they, it seemed like they'd covered up the tracks very well. Yeah, very well. Yeah. You know, usually something like this is something to do with like sex, drugs, money, or something. I mean, they just didn't have nothing. No. No motive at all. It's just weird. Crazy. But out of the people affected by Mike's death, none was hit harder than his wife, Mary Beth. Poor Mary Beth. Yeah, just hours before his senseless murder, she had been looking forward to a long, happy life with Mike as her soulmate. Mm-hmm. And but then a random Thursday in January of 2001 changed everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Never want to get that phone call. Mary Beth, she struggled endlessly after Mike's murder. Yeah. Um, she couldn't. It'd be hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, this I know. Man. She knew his murder. There's no reason. Yeah. She knew his murder, but he was dead too. And yeah. been dealing with both of those aspects of it. I can't even imagine. Yeah, she didn't want to put them together. No. She's like, if I thought about it that way, I'd just probably never get out of bed. I mean, she had must have, you know, serious depression and stuff going on, I'm sure. I mean, how do you deal with something like that? I know. But there was a $50,000 reward that was announced, primarily put together by local real estate organizations that were concerned about the very nature of this case. And Mike's boss, his name was Joe Deasy, who owned several Windermere establishments in the east side. Yeah, Windermere was the realty company. Yes. He even said that Mike's death made us realize that we need to take our safety precautions to a whole different level. 100% agree with that. Yeah. But this fear was felt by realtors throughout the Pacific Northwest, and Mike's uh, murder served as a major stepping stone for safety standards in the real estate business. Yeah, changing up stuff, you know, because that was, he's pretty much the reason now you had you need to leave your driver's license or a copy of your driver's license and maybe even your keys at the office, and you definitely meet at the office. Not at a third place. Not at a third location. No. Yeah, not even at the house, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly, you meet me here and we'll go over. Yeah. But over the next 10 years, Mike Emmert's case, it continued to languish. It's cold, man. Yeah. Investigators weren't even able to cover any new information about this mysterious client, Stephen, that Mike had met on the morning of his murder. Stephen. And they struggled to come up with any new evidence. Hmm. Now, just a month after Mike Emmert was murdered, there was a bank that was robbed in Issaquah, Washington. And this bandit made away with $3,100, just a little over Mm $3,100. We know this crime was committed by Gary Kruger because just two months later, the robber struck that same bank again, Dale, and this time using a pellet gun to hold up the tellers. And he managed to escape out the front doors with over $6,500. But he didn't get far. No. They got him. He was arrested. Yeah. And like we said, surprise, surprise, it was Gary Kruger. It was. Why would you go back to the same damn bank? I don't know. But during his trial proceedings, he was convicted on two bank robbery charges and given a rather delinquent sentence of 70 months. Yeah. Two. Yeah. And the judge took pity on Gary Kruger uh, because of his recent diagnosis of a post-traumatic stress disorder, and he urged Gary to get his life together. Right. And throughout this entire time, all these chances. Yeah. Gary's wife all this time stood by him 
while he was in prison again. Mm. And our patient was rewarded again in 2004. Because guess what? He gets out early. Early release. <laughs> God almighty. And Gary Kruger agreed to an agreement which allowed him to be paroled early. And this was an exchange for him submitting some DNA to the federal authorities, Dale. Right. Which I think he should already had. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, they should already had this on him. But unfortunately, Gary Kruger would be released, but the DNA sample would not be collected by federal parole officers until 2007. Three years. Yes. They waited three years. So why not, before you walk out the door, whatever they do, swab, spit in the tube, whatever, whatever they do to them. I yeah. However you get a blood sample, whatever it is. Why don't you do that before you ever walk out the door? Why do they want to wait three years? They waited three years to get a DNA sample from it Makes him. no damn sense. But when they got it, it was sent to the FBI uh, office in Virginia. Well, they'll get that right on there then. So we'll yeah. see what's going on now. Now, when Gary Kruger's DNA was finally tested in 2011, it had been nearly a decade. 2011? So, yeah. So he got out of jail with the agreement that he would give up a DNA sample. And then three years later, they finally get the DNA sample, send it to the FBI. And that gets dusty on the shelf. For four years? It sits there, yeah. It sits on the shelf for four years. I guess they had a backlog. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But what the investigators would soon learn, this testing would be a little too late. What do you think? But in March of 2010... There was a family. Their last name was McAllister. And this family was terrorized one night, Dale. This was on Lake Washington. Okay. Right there in that area. And this was when uh, Dr. McAllister, Dr. Craig McAllister, mm -hmm. he was coming home late one night because he had went to pick up his son at the airport. He was coming in from college. Correct. And when they got home, they had to park in the street because he'd had a load of mulch. Delivered in the driveway. And they and it just was, dumped it right in the middle of the driveway. Yeah. yeah. So they had to park on the street and walk up to the house. Mm -hmm. And when they were walking up to the house, a guy come out from, I guess, the darkness somewhere. He was behind the mulch, wasn't there? Something? Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, hiding somewhere. And he was dressed in black and had on a ski mask. Yeah, correct. And this strange man calmly told the two McAllisters that he had a gun. Mm. And if they just cooperated, no one would get hurt. And he insisted that both... Uh, Dr. McAllister and his son, Ryan, go along with all of his demands oh, and yes, lead him inside the house. But now, Dr. McAllister knew that he couldn't do that because in the house was his wife and his 13-year-old daughter. Right. Yeah. So, it's just kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. they just waiting in the yard, and how did they even know he was coming home? And this is 1030 at night. And you and I a, talked about this. Yeah. And this is another very affluent neighborhood, yeah. which is kind of weird. Yeah, he's just hanging out there in the darkness. This uh, guy in a black outfit and ski mask. Yeah. Just waiting for him to get home. How the hell did he know? I don't know. This is very confusing to me. Yeah. But uh, this uh, Dr. McAllister knew he couldn't let him in the house. Yeah, he'd have made up his mind. Yeah. So he was either fight or flight. Yeah, so he wasn't running. So he was going to fight him. Yeah. Yeah. So they got in a big scuffle. He just kind of tackled the dude in the driveway. Yeah. Yeah. So while they were on the ground exchanging punches, another man comes out yeah. from behind the bushes or the darkness and pistol whips 
Dr. McAllister behind the, the one of his ears. Yeah, he said in an interview that when he decided to do it, he just dove on him, and the the son just took off running to a house to try to dial 911 and yeah. call the cops. He got away. Yeah, so he tackled the guy and was just on top of him, punching him, punching him. He said that uh, he said I was just swinging and swinging and swinging because I figured if he had a gun, it was in his pocket because he didn't have it in his hand. As long as I can keep him flailing his arms, he couldn't get his gun. So my that was my my drive was to just not just not stop until we can do something. That's right. Know? So which is pretty pretty uh pretty I don't know mm-hmm. valiant I guess. But uh, Doctor McAllister was pistol whipped and it uh, opened up a big gash in his head. Well, he said that they, they, apparently the guy hit him three times. Another guy come around the house and he said the first one didn't really even phase me. The second one. He felt it pretty good, and the third one just kind of put him down. Yeah. I, I can mean, you know, that, uh, that can't be good. Dr. McAllister was led to the front door by the two men, and they began trying to kick the door. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, his wife, Stacy, was in the house, and she knew their son was coming home from school. And she was up, and she, yeah, she had no idea this was going on. No. Uh-uh. And she went to the front door. She opened the front door. Yes. And she saw... A man in black. Yeah. With a mask on. And before she could, uh, they could do anything, she shuts the door and locks the deadbolt. Yeah, runs and calls the that was just That was quick thinking on her part. It was brilliant. Yeah. It was, yeah. And they go back to Dr. McAllister and they want his keys. Yeah. So they could take his car. Yeah, that's what they were wanting. And he reached to his pocket and he realized he had his keys, but he told him he didn't have his keys. Did yeah, because he had a, a house key on that same ring. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart thinking. Really? He said, no, my son was driving. He's got the keys. Yeah, and he's gone. Yeah. So the guys were talking back and forth, and they didn't know what to do. Which is weird. Yeah. This whole this whole thing here is just strange to me. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to have some thoughts on this a little bit later. Yeah. Definitely. So anyway, they decided they'd just leave. Yeah. They left. <laughs> yeah. So Mike gets to the door, and he gets in the house. But the two guys left. Yeah. So but, it's really strange. And don't forget... During that scuffle, he ripped the guy's mask off, one of them. He did. Yeah. Which belonged to one of the gunmen. And a quick forensic examination of the ski mask yielded multiple DNA samples. And when they were put into the system, it quickly came up with a suspect. And his name was John Allen Bradshaw. Bradshaw. Now, John Allen Bradshaw was, at this point, 65 years old. His past didn't point to any kind of violent crime that would be related to any kind of home invasion, but he had been previously convicted for arson and money laundering and uh, things like that. Yeah. He actually had done an eight-year sentence for that kind of stuff. Yeah, from... Uh, um, 2001 to 2008. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But a quick check through his records pointed to an address where he had been living for a short period of time, and this home was owned by none other than Gary Kruger. Hmm. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. yeah. Here we go. And police attempted to find this John Allen Bradshaw, but even weeks after the failed home invasion of the McAllisters, they couldn't find him. Mm. And they couldn't find the guy that owned the house, this Gary Kruger. Couldn't find him neither. No. In fact, in just one week after this invasion, failed home invasion, Gary's wife, Betty, had filed a missing persons report mm. and stated that her husband was broke and was desperate for some money. So while they're looking for him over there, beating the door down at her house, she's over there filing missing parking report. That's right. Right. And police now suspected that the two men were in on an attempted crime together, perhaps intended to rob the McAllisters, but uh, any motive was unknown. Yeah. They would spend the next six months trying to put all these pieces together, 
But it wasn't until September of that year that they made a big discovery. Yeah, because you think if it was going to be a robbery, they'd go rob a store or something. I mean, I mean, I don't know. There's yeah. something in the house it was after. You know, you just you wouldn't go in a very affluent neighborhood at ten thirty at night to go try to if you were just going for a robbery. It was something else. Up. Yeah, there was something know. else going on yeah, with that. I don't, don't know. But. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that at the end. But in September of 2010, the body of Gary Kruger was found, Dale. Mm. And it was floating along the surface of Lake Washington. It's like six months later, right? Yeah. Yeah. And his wife, Betty Kruger, filed for bankruptcy the very next day. I guess so. She knew she was done. Mm -hmm. And a thorough examination of the surroundings revealed a capsized boat nearby where his body was found. And this uh, nine-foot boat had been stolen from a neighbor of the McAllisters on the night that they were uh, attacked, this huh. uh, this attempted home invasion. And it was six months later, it was found buried underneath the surface of uh, Lake Washington. Now, inside this boat, investigators found a duffel bag that contained hand restraints, duct tape, and ammunition for the weapon that the two men, Gary Kruger and John Allen Bradshaw, had been supposedly carrying Dale. Wow. And this discovery led to a lot of questions about the motives of the two men and whether it had become a simple robbery. And these tools seem to indicate a much more violent or potential outcome. Now, investigators could only find obscure links between the McAllisters and either Gary Kruger or Bradshaw, but they continued to operate as if the missing suspect was alive, this Bradshaw guy. Right. Yeah. Even this uh, Dr. McAllister who was attacked, uh, who had attempted to fight off one of them, stated that we're functioning as if this John Allen Bradshaw is still alive and out there somewhere, and he's coming back. Yeah, they don't want to let their guard down, mm -hmm. you know. It's just safer to live that way. Yeah. Now, this view shared by the King County Sheriff's Office, even though they had much more realistic outlook, they had discovered... The van that Kruger and Bradshaw had been driving on the night in question, and it was found at a strip mall parking lot just a little over a mile from the McAllister home. And this indicated that they had meant to go back, but never got the chance. So um, did they walk a mile from this parking lot to the McAllister home? I don't know. This whole damn thing blows my mind. Or were they just walking into these neighborhoods trying to find somewhere to break in? There ain't no damn way they walked a mile. Mm -mm, no. Not without being seen. And this is where they seem to have come up with a motive for the McAllister attempted home invasion. This Dr. McAllister, he was an orthopedic surgeon. Right. And they heard that Gary Kruger's wife was needing a knee replacement or some type of knee surgery. Yeah. And Dr. McAllister wouldn't perform the surgery. Because well, they couldn't afford it. That's right. And he was wanting some kind of payment plan or something. No, the doctor actually offered him a payment plan, and Gary wanted him to do it for free. That's what he was wanting. Yeah. So the doctor's like, well, I can't do it for free, but, it, you know, it'll give you a you know a payment plan. But he that, he wasn't here. He wouldn't have none of that. Give you some options. Yeah. So, wait. So, they're thinking they're thinking he did this because he wouldn't do the knee surgery. That's what they're thinking. That he's going to walk a mile. So, what was it going to do? Kidnap him? I and then take know. him and make him do it in the garage? I mean, it don't make no sense. I don't know. That, uh, that just seems okay, we'll a come lot. Back to, we'll come back to this in a minute. That just seems like a lot. Yeah, just go ahead. We'll unpack that in a minute. Go ahead. Now, after, now, a year after they found Kruger's body floating in Lake Washington, 
Mike Emmert's wife, uh, Mary Beth, received a phone call. Okay. And this phone call informed her that there was a DNA match that had been made to her husband, Mike's killer. And this DNA match, which had paired up forensic evidence found of Mike's black Escalade, had been in the FBI database since 2001, like we talked about. But the DNA match was to Gary Kruger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they assume they're saying that he's the one who killed him. Yeah, that's right. So by the time Mary Beth received a phone call informing her that Mike's killer had been found. He'd the, already been dead for a year and a half. Yeah. So if they'd have done their job and got this taken care of, they might could have got him in and done some questioning. Which comes him. back to what you said a while ago. It was a little bit too little too late. That's right. Ah, full circle. Yeah, definitely. They could have found out why why this other stuff was done, but no. But there were some more incidents that happened that they think are linked to Gary Kruger. In 1981, there was a former police officer. His name was Terry Dolan. He was shot outside of a gas station. And he actually owned and managed the gas station. Right. And this was in Everett, Washington. And he was killed in what originally looked like a robbery, but was later determined to be staged by some unknown killer. Okay. So it was like a hit, maybe. Yeah. And Gary Kruger then was a struggling real estate agent that we talked about. And he was suspected of involvement in this crime, but never charged due to lack of evidence. Wow. Yeah, then uh, in 1984, there was a Bellevue attorney named Jim Barry that stayed late for work one night preparing a late-night appointment with a client, and he was stabbed repeatedly by an unknown attacker and left to bleed out in his office. But Gary Kruger was not initially suspected, but he was later determined that Barry, an attorney, was representing a bank that was involved in collection efforts against Gary Kruger. Oh, wow, because he had fallen behind on this one. And now having a delinquent loan. Yeah. So what the hell did he think killing the attorney's going to do? He's still going to have. <laughs> they still got to pay the loan. Still, yeah. It ain't going to stop nothing. No. And in 1985, there was a Seattle union boss who headed up the hotel and restaurant employees local union eight was found murdered in a bathtub. Hmm, really? Yeah. And a crime that was very similar to that of Mike Emmert. And this guy's name was Mario Vaccarino. And he had been beaten to death before being dragged into a bathtub. And get this, Parmesan cheese had been sprinkled all over his body, which was some a Some kind of mob thing or yeah, something? Yes, some kind of mob warning. And it was assumed that his crime was linked to the mob's potential takeover of the union pension plans. Mm. Could be. And Gary Kruger was actually suspected of involvement after it was revealed that his buddy, Joe Massimino Sr., worked for the Union. And the two men, uh, back to their time in Vietnam, and Massimino, who worked under Mario Vaccarino, and was worried about being fired. Hmm. But after Vaccarino's death, he succeeded the man and became Union president. He didn't get fired, he became president. That's right. But after Gary Kruger's death, investigators questioned Betty's wife about his potential involvement. And when suspected of Mario Vaccarino's death came up, she all but admitted to Gary's involvement in the murder. Well, I mean, but all but. Yeah. They ask her a question, did he kill him? He goes, well, you know he did. That's what she <laughs> of did. Of course yeah. he did. Yeah. That's pretty much admitting. 
So you're thinking he's, I mean, this guy's a hitman. Then. That's what they're thinking, yeah. Of course, he killed people that he didn't like, killed people who was after him, and then also did it for money, you think? Yeah. Hmm. I just can't get the connection between... The thing with the doctor blows my mind. Yes. Because we talked about this a little bit today, because I'm coming over and I'm like, listen, this don't make any sense to me at all. I mean, did he, he didn't go there to kill the doctor, in my opinion, because if he did, he would have shot him in the driveway and been done with it. Yeah. He was wanting in that house for something. Yeah, that's and right. If the wife and the daughter was in there, what was he going to do? He had these restraints that he found in the bag later. In the duct tape, was he going to kidnap the wife and then make him fix his wife's leg to get his wife back, right, or something? I mean, it it doesn't make any sense, though. You know why? Nothing makes sense to that. No. I mean, and then they found the van a mile away. Somebody had to drop them off. There's no way they walked there. No, there's no way. I mean, I, it's possible that they could, but I'm not thinking that they did. Not all in black and ski mask, right? With no human you know, slide through the shadows, maybe, but yeah, yeah. I ain't, he, this dude ain't walking. Mm-mm. Sorry, I'm, I'm thinking this uh, Gary Kruger is was part of some kind of bigger, you know what, what organization. I thinking, yeah, I do too, because you know what, I keep thinking back, you know, because he had the serious gambling problem. I think he got into money deep into the mob, he owed the mob money, wherever he was gambling is, and this is his only way out. Yeah, well, this is what we need done. If you don't want us to break your kneecaps. Or whatever they do. You perform these tasks. We need this done, and then you get, we'll take you off the books. That's right. Which yeah. kind of makes sense to me there. But this doctor thing, I don't, none of that makes any sense at all. So when they went, that's what got him killed. Yeah. And when they went to this, like we said, this home invasion, yeah. it, it, it went south. It didn't happen. Right. Because they had to leave. And yeah. just whatever they were supposed to do there didn't take place. The mob came after this Gary Kruger. You think so? I think so, because he was ended up in the bottom of the lake. Yeah, with the boat upside down. Yeah. Hmm. I want. Well, we never found this other cat, right? He's never been located. Hmm. So maybe he was. His job was to take Gary out. Yeah, could have been if he Gary didn't know. do his job, and then yeah, it's just another loose end. But what would be the point of going there in the first damn place? And I just don't know that he went there for something personal. I know. Because if he wanted to kill the guy, he could have killed him in the driveway. He said he had a gun. The other guy did have a gun because he smashed him in the head. We don't know that the first guy had a gun. never seen it. He just said he did. And if he wanted in the house, they could have been in the house before doctor ever got home. He could have threw a rock through the window and got in the house. Yeah. He didn't have to go through the door. If they were trying to get in the house to do something to that lady or his daughter, they could have got in there and done that. They knew the fellow wasn't home. They're standing out in the yard hiding, waiting for him to get home. Yeah. They knew. So, yeah, so that, that that whole thing, something's up there. I don't know if there was something in that house that they were after. Uh, I don't know. It just doesn't make any any sense at all mm-hmm. to me. It's just uh, the part of the story that got him killed. Yeah. Or whatever happened. I mean, I don't want to say it did get him killed. He's, he ended up dead after that. Stole a boat and flipped it and drowned, whatever happened. I don't know, I don't know if he flipped and drowned or what, dude. I, I don't see it happening. No. Mm-mm. Well, I mean, but something happened. Gary was a military man. I mean, he would know how to operate a boat. You would think. Yeah. He was in the Navy. Yeah. I mean, I mean really. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, there's something going on there. I think maybe he's just getting a little bit too wide for whoever, whoever was putting him up to all this stuff. Yeah. This John Allen Bradshaw that was with him, that might have been his cleaner. Yeah. Yeah. They might have told him this is what this is what's going to happen here. Yeah. I don't know. This didn't happen. Well, no, this is all speculation on our point because we don't know what happened, and we're just trying to make it make sense. 
that's all. I, that's the only thing that makes any kind of sense to me. Yeah, but there's a lot of little sub stories in this. Uh, it's really confusing. Sometimes. Gary Kruger, yes, saga. It is. We tried to explain it the best we could, but this um, case on Mike Emmert, the real estate agent, is still ongoing. Yeah. Now they're pretty they're pretty sure that he did it because you know they found his DNA in the car and the blood and all that stuff. But as far as motive and all that stuff, it's never been, you know, they've never found a motive. And, yeah. and so it's still an open and ongoing case as far as they're going. Because, I mean, they can't charge Gary with it because he's dead, even though they think he did it. Yeah. So technically it's still open and ongoing. They don't know any reason why. Right. The why. why. And, yeah, it don't make any sense. Mm-mm. Unless somebody just paid him to kill him. But then again, they can't find a reason why anybody would want him dead. Yeah. After all that investigating, you know, the family and everybody he knows, even going back as far as 10 years, like we said. Yeah. Yeah. This puts me so much into the mind of uh, Al Oki Kite that we covered. Yeah, because when we first started doing it, I'm like, man, this sounds like the same thing. And then I looked, and that was in Colorado. And this is definitely not, but I'm not saying. The guy walked with the limp and the cane. Yeah, the limp and the cane. Yeah. That's what gave me chills when we first started doing it. I'm like, man, that's the same. And then the real estate thing is kind of like Lindsay, you know, Lindsay Buziak. But I don't I mean I don't think that's related to me. The the Oki thing seemed like it was almost the same difference except for he was just tied up and tortured instead of putting a bathtub. That's right. Yeah, his death was way worse. But anyway, that is Gary Curtis Kruger. He's a bad dude, man. He was, man. Yeah. Worse than Freddy. <laughs> yeah, because he's a real deal. Yeah. All right, dude. We're gonna get out of here, man. Okay, man, let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.